Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors at Salt Church. Great to be opening the Bible with you. Welcome if you're new or visiting with us today. It's fantastic having you here. Uh, Show of hands, who has seen the show Undercover Boss? That's like half the room. Okay, pretty good. Uh, This show first aired on TV in 2009. And the idea, if you haven't seen it, the senior executive of a company goes undercover in their own company. And they work on the front line as just an entry-level worker. And they do it to find out how can they improve the company and to meet the actual people who work for them. And it was hugely popular as a show. The US version of this show ran 11 seasons. Uh, It was produced locally in 11 different countries, including Australia. They made their own local version. And I was thinking, why was it so popular? I think one reason is because it was honest. That the employees said things that they would never say if they knew it was their boss. The staff would say to the undercover boss things they'd never say if they knew this was the actual boss. And you got these beautiful moments when the bosses got to see and care about the staff who actually made their company succeed. And you got these really fun, hilarious moments where a staff member just trash-talked their boss and then they got fired <laughs> once they, you know, the big reveal moment. Uh, you got these moments where one person got rewarded, one got fired. Uh, even moments where, like, the undercover boss would work and the manager would just be terrible, just cutting corners, breaking the law, just stealing from the company, and their boss is right there watching it all. They don't realize that. I think it plays off the idea to make the right response to someone, you have to understand who they are. If you're going to make the right response to someone, you have to understand who they are. If they knew it was their boss they were talking to, they wouldn't be stealing company property right in front of them. They didn't know And so they just gave their honest, blunt, unguarded responses. It's kind of the same as the instant karma videos. I'm sure you've seen these on YouTube. Someone drives illegally. You know, they drive on the shoulder or the wrong side of the road to avoid traffic. And it turns out the car behind them is an undercover cop. And the sirens go on. They pull them over immediately. Instant karma. They would never do that if they knew it was a cop car behind them. To make the right response to someone, you have to understand who they are. So who is Jesus? And therefore, what's the right response to Jesus? That's what this part of the Bible is all about. And like those instant karma videos, like the undercover boss, there are some wildly inappropriate responses to Jesus in this part of the Bible. People who don't see who Jesus is, and so don't make the right response. And if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, kind of exploring what God says about life, this is going to be a great help to you as you make up your mind about Jesus. If you're going to hold him at arm's length or welcome him with open arms. And if you're here and you're a Christian, this is going to be a great help for us as well. Because there's so much depth and richness to what we look here, what we're looking at here. Uh, we want to treat Jesus the right way. That's what it means to be a Christian. But there's so many layers, so much depth to help us better understand who Jesus is. And as well as that, Jesus is deliberately going to refine us today. There's a whole bunch of things Jesus does in this part of the Bible to deliberately help people understand him so they can make the response that Jesus deserves. So that's the journey that God's going to take us on. Why don't I pray and ask that God will help us do this? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you speak. 
We pray that as we look at this, you'll help us understand Jesus better, either for the first time or the millionth time. Give us that insight, refine us so that we can respond the right way. Amen. Who is Jesus? Have a look with me, Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Bit of context. Jesus has been traveling to the capital city of ancient Israel, Jerusalem. He's been traveling there for ages and he finally arrives. And to prepare for his entry, he gets a donkey to sit on so that he can fulfill an Old Testament promise about ancient Israel's king coming on a donkey. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, there's two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament's before Jesus. New Testament is his life, death, resurrection, start of the church. There are heaps of Old Testament references here and quotes. I counted 16 of them, just in like 30 verses. There's 16 references or quotes from the Old Testament. I'm sure I missed some. I'm sure there is even more than that. And it's like Matthew's going out of his way to show us all these layers of what's going on here. So we get more depth here. And Jesus gets on a donkey to show this crowd that he's the king. And the crowd kind of get it. Like Sean's been telling us, the crowd are like excited, they're celebrating. And they kind of get it because they do the things that you would do for a king back then. Let me show you verse 6. Here's what they do. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They're putting their, they're probably only own one cloak back in this day. They're putting out their best jacket. They're laying it on the floor for a donkey to walk across. Why do they do that? Because it's a little bit like King Jehu in 2 Kings 9. Look at this. Jehu said, this is what the Lord says to me. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. They're kind of showing, yes, king, here's a king. Let's show that. Let's take our jacket off. Let's show that. As well as that, verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This, the branch thing, the shout is a quote as well. This is a quote from Psalm 118. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Direct quote. They're directly quoting this. With bows in hand, join in the feastal procession up to the horns of the altar. These are all the things we do for a king. Because that's who Jesus is. He's king. But not merely a king. Not like King Charles or something. He's God's king. They shout, did you see? They shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Old Testament reference again. Who's David? David was specially chosen by God to be the king of his people in the Old Testament. To be God's king over God's people. To represent God. To act for God. Rule in God's name. And so Jesus is God's chosen king who acts for and represents God. The other thing Jesus is, he's a savior, which is in what they say. They say, Hosanna 
to the son of David. Hosanna means God save us. Blessed is the king who represents God because he comes to save us. And kings and governments and bosses, they do this. They, kings, our kings, our governments, our bosses, they make choices that can save you. At the moment, we want to be saved from inflation. And so we're hoping that the Reserve Bank and government policies will save us from inflation. Uh, if you want a pay rise to cope with the increased cost of living, your boss could save you by increasing your pay. If you're accused of a crime that you didn't commit and you were found guilty, the governor general can pardon you and save you. That's what our leaders do. Our leaders can save us from bad situations. And King Jesus is here to save. Last one. He comes not merely to represent God. Jesus is God. And for this one, we have to see that passage from Malachi again. Have a look at it again. The passage that Beck just read for us. God speaking here, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, said the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Now, this promise comes 400 years before the book of Matthew. This is kind of the last thing that God said to his people in the Old Testament. Then there's 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist rocks up. And John the Baptist is that messenger who prepares the way for God. And what are you expecting from this promise? You've been looking at it for 400 years, waiting for this moment. There's a lot of expectation here. What are you expecting? You're expecting someone to come and prepare the way for God. And then for God's to come, the Lord you are seeking, to come to his temple to refine his people. And John the Baptist has come to prepare people for God. And then what's the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives in Jerusalem? Have a look in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. The very first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he refines it. He purifies them because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. The very one Malachi 3 was waiting for. Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. It's Malachi 3 in front of our very eyes. That's who he is. Jesus is King and Savior and God. It's actually even more explicit in verse 14. Look with me, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Uh, the religious leaders are upset here. They're indignant. They're furious, might be a better word to put there. They're furious at these kids and what these kids are saying because sometimes kids say inappropriate things and you sort of have to quietly correct them. You know, like, Dad, why is that man so fat? Uh, Mom, why does that woman only have one leg? Did a crocodile eat it? Yes, definitely a crocodile. Sometimes kids just say weird things. And so... The religious leaders are hoping that Jesus will correct them because the kids are shouting to Jesus, save us, you're God's king. 
they don't think he is God's king. And so they want Jesus to correct them. Instead, Jesus just takes it up a notch. And he quotes Psalm 8, which is a song to God about how even kids praise God. And Jesus says, even kids praise God. So I'm not going to stop these kids praising me. See the connection that he's making here? Jesus is God the saving king. A few years ago, I lived in Newcastle and me and a bunch of Christian uni students decided we were going to put some butcher's paper up on all the notice boards at uni with a question on there. And we wrote this question. We wrote, Jesus is dot, dot, dot. Or who do you think Jesus is? To see what people would write. Who did Newcastle University think Jesus is? There were wildly different answers people gave. There were some standard Christian answers like he's Lord and he's God. There were the classic answers like he's a good teacher, he's a miracle worker, he's a myth. There were some ridiculous answers like Jesus is Elvis or uh, Jesus is a raptosaurus, which I can only assume is a rapping dinosaur. We didn't really hit the level of intelligent discussion I was hoping for, but it did make me realize something. I noticed that for many of the responses, Jesus is who you want Jesus to be, not a real historical figure. Few of the answers bore any resemblance to what Jesus said about himself in the pages of the Bible. And many of the people missed who Jesus is. So they didn't make the right response to him. Like the staff who trash talk as the undercover boss because they don't realize he's undercover like the driver who makes the illegal move because they don't know the cop is just behind them. If Jesus is God the saving king, what's the right response to him? Well, the right response is to trust, obey, and worship Jesus. And we see what that looks like. We see the sharp edges of what that looks like when all of the people in this passage make the wrong response. Uh, starting off with the crowd. The crowd cry out, save us, King. Save us, King Jesus. Because ancient Israel then is a little bit like the Ukraine at the moment, uh, in that they've been invaded and they're under the harsh rule of ancient Rome. And they want a warrior king who will fight for them and lead them on this mighty battle horse. That's what they're hoping for. And that's the vibe in the air, actually, as all these pilgrims come to Jerusalem. There's revolution in the air because the reason that they're all walking, the reason they've been traveling for ages to get to Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the week of Passover, which is the moment when they remember how God saved them from the harsh rule of ancient Egypt and rescued them through the prophet Moses. And it kind of makes sense of something that's a little bit weird. Have a look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus. You're expecting them to say, The King. But they don't. They say, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowds don't fully get Jesus. Even though they take off their robe, their jacket, and lay it on the floor, even though they sing to the King, even though they cut branches, They can't see that Jesus is God's saving king. At best, they think he's a prophet. And if so, maybe, hopefully, he's like Moses back in the Old Testament who saved them from Egypt. And they're hoping maybe this prophet will do the same thing from Rome. And they miss it. 
They miss the saving king who's right in front of their very eyes because they're looking for the wrong thing. And Jesus goes out of his way to correct their false views so that these people and we don't make the same mistakes. He doesn't get on a war horse. He finds a donkey. He finds a donkey to ride on. Something like this is what he rides on. Uh, Verse 2 there's a mum, I don't know what a mum donkey's called. Does anybody know what a mum donkey's called? The baby's called a colt. I know that much. There's a mum and a colt. And he sits on the colt, not the mum. And they're both there as he rides in. It, it, basically, I think you're meant to picture Jesus' feet dragging on the ground as he rides this mini pony, mini donkey, into Jerusalem. And he does it to show that he's a different kind of king to the king that they're expecting. He does bring saving but from sin and God's judgment. He does bring peace, but peace between us and God. He's not going to come and lead one nation. He's going to come and rule the universe. And so the right response is to trust and obey him. But the crowd don't see it. The crowd don't want to see it. So they don't trust and obey him. Instead, they shape Jesus to suit them. Just like all the people in Newcastle University on the butcher's paper did. Just like we are likely to do. Uh, One of the things, we've been working our way through this 21% of Matthew's gospel. Uh, I found this series very helpful and very confronting. So practical, so many sharp edges. And I've realized all through this series, I want to shape Jesus to suit me. I want to do this too. I want a victorious Jesus who will fix my problems and meet my needs. I don't really need a warrior king, though. I don't need that kind of person in my life. But I'd love a Jesus who gave me love, who made me feel loved, who made me feel validated, who met my needs for significance and entertainment. And that actually is a widespread way that Jesus is being reshaped in the last couple of years. A Jesus who's more like a therapist, Jesus is more like a therapist who comes to rescue us from our discomfort and less like a savior who comes to rescue us from sin. A Jesus who comes to meet our needs to feel loved and significant and validated and entertained and affirmed. And and that the main thing he gives is the feeling of peace or hope or meaning or better relationships or a better way to live your life. It's very appealing. I can see why it's gaining traction. But it really is a Jesus shaped to suit us. Uh, Here's a quote. This comes from a guy named Thomas Aquinas, a Christian thinker. This is 800 years ago he wrote this in the 13th century. And I think it's disturbingly modern. Here's what he said. We confuse two similar yet different human actions. We see people searching desperately for peace of mind, relief from guilt, meaning and purpose to their lives and loving acceptance. We know that ultimately these things can only be found in God. Therefore, we conclude that since people are seeking these things, they must be seeking after God. People do not seek God. They seek after the benefits that only God can give them. The sin of fallen man is this. Man seeks the benefits of God, while at the same time fleeing from God himself. We are by nature fugitives. I think that's a profound statement from 800 years ago. Because the very thing Jesus saves us from is the sin of using Jesus to feel good. 
The very thing God, Jesus saves us from is the sin of shaping Jesus to suit us. And Jesus saves us not from the feeling of guilt, but from genuine guilt before God. He brings not the feeling of peace, but genuine peace between us and God. And Jesus is going out of his way to correct our false understanding so we make the only right response there is, to trust and obey our Savior King. In his generosity, he also gives us the freedom from the feelings of guilt often and the feeling of peace with God. And he does help us see how loved and validated and affirmed we are. But that's a byproduct of the actual thing he's doing. He comes as a rescuer. That's what the crowd get wrong. They don't see that the only right response is to trust and obey the saving king. What about the religious leaders? The religious leaders are responsible for worshipping God in the temple and in the courtyards. And they think their job is to help God's people worship in a pure way. And then Jesus rocks up and here's what happens. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus seems pretty worked up here. What is he so angry about? Not because they're changing money and selling doves. This morning, I accidentally said, not because they're changing money and selling drugs, (laughs) which is a very different thing Jesus would be correcting. Selling doves. Um, It's a legitimate service that they're providing here. Uh, Back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, God says to his people, if you live really far away, Imagine, imagine the temples like in Brisbane. If you live that far away from the temple, you don't have to get your, your cow or whatever and travel the entire distance to the temple. You can sell it, get the money, travel to the temple, trade it in, trade in your coins, buy whatever you want, do your sacrifice there and eat with God. It was a legitimate service that they were providing. The problem is, of all the places they could have set up shop, they picked the temple courts. God's temple was meant to be for all the nations to come and pray and worship and have a relationship with God. But instead, they took up all the floor space to make a profit. And instead of prayer, it's full of robbers. And so Jesus refines their worship, like we saw in Malachi. Uh, In the first century, the way that you refine silver and gold, I'll look this up this week, the way you refine it is you get the, the silver or the gold And you'd melt it into a liquid. You'd you'd heat it up to a thousand degrees Celsius until it was a liquid. And then you would blow on it until all the impurities came to the surface and you'd scrape them off. And you repeat that process a few times and you're finally left with pure silver or pure gold. And the way they made clothes back in the day, the way they made clothes is they would take the raw, filthy wool from a sheep They would clean it with this harsh soap that was made from the ashes of a couple of different types of plants and gritty sand. They would soak it in water and then they would just scrub it and beat it and tread on it until they got all the filth, all of the impurities out and it was pure white. Both of those two things are intense, vigorous actions to try and burn out and scrub out all of the impurities. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is like the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. And it sounds pretty painful, that experience. Both of those things are pretty intense. They're pretty painful experiences. But the pain leads to gain. And the gain is in verse 14. Look what happens after he's done this. 
The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. They come to him and he heals them. The blind and the lame, with all the traders gone, the blind and the lame and the children worship in the temple courts like God always intended. And when they see what Jesus did, the religious leaders should have rejoiced. They should have repented. They should have been refined. Instead, they challenged Jesus. I come to verse 23. Look at their challenge. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Uh, Let me reword this. They're basically saying, which Bible college did you go to, Jesus? Which rabbi did you train under? Can I see your qualifications? Show me the piece of paper. Because Jesus has been chucking over tables and he's not listening to what they say. He's not submitting to their authority and they're the ones with all the power. Surely he can't represent and speak for God. So they ask this question. Jesus comes up with a very clever answer. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? It's a very clever question because John the Baptist was the messenger chosen by God to prepare the people for Jesus. He's directly appointed by God. He didn't go to Bible college. He doesn't have the qualification, but he's a, he's a prophet. He's directly appointed by God. And so if they reject John the Baptist, they're rejecting the one who's been appointed by God, the God that they claim to worship. And if they admit John the Baptist is from God, Well, then there's a valid way of getting authority outside all their structures and Jesus comes in that way. You see what they're doing here? Jesus is very clever. And then verse 25, here's their response. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. It's not that they don't know, is it, though? It's that they won't admit that they do know. They won't admit because they're not trying to protect worship of God. They're just trying to protect their own power and authority and status. And then Jesus tells this parable that's very stinging for them. And as we'll discover, could be very stinging for us. Here's what he says, verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. What's the difference between the two sons? The second son says all the right things, but doesn't obey. The first says the wrong thing, but changes their mind repents, changes their behavior, and does what their father wants. And Jesus' point is that you are the second son. You say that you trust and obey and worship God. But talk is cheap, and your actions show the complete opposite. And more than that, you're not willing to repent when it's pointed out to you. You're refusing to be refined. These religious teachers these religious leaders are hypocrites they got no integrity they're driven by self-righteousness self-preservation 
And it's dangerously easy to be like that. It's dangerously easy to look like you're worshipping God when you're not. To say all the right things, but to have a heart that is far from God. I remember meeting a man a few years ago at a church up in Sydney. Uh, He was in his 70s. And I said to him, I was like 25 or something at the time. And I said to him, you know, how long have you been going to this church? And he said, 55 years. It's like, wow, that's amazing. 55 years in the same church. That's fantastic. How long have you been a Christian? And he said, five years. And then he told me the story of how he'd become a Christian. He had so much joy and excitement on his face as he talked about Jesus. But I was just thinking, what were you doing for 50 years? What was he doing? He was turning up to church almost every single week. He was singing all the songs. It was an old school kind of church. He was reading the Lord's Prayer. He was joining in all the liturgy, all the things that they said. Convincing all the people around him that he was a Christian. The best place to hide from God is actually in a church. Because it doesn't look like you're hiding. And I'm sure that's some of us right now. You can be there saying all the right things, convincing all the people that around you that you're legitimate, but talk is cheap. And if you're here and you actually are a genuine Christian, you love Jesus, you trust Jesus, we need to do what God our Father wants. We need to be quick to repent when we fail to obey. When we say, I will not, we need to change our minds and repent and follow him. We, we need to be eager to be refined, I think. It's a bit of a painful process. It's painful to get it. Your, your sins, your impurities burned out, scrubbed out. But that pain, it leads to gain. Uh, to be honest, I think at times I'm not very eager for my worship of Jesus to be refined. Uh, I can get defensive when people point out my flaws as a Christian. I get self-righteous. I get self-protective. But I think what I've been struck by in this passage, I want to, and I think all Christians should want to be stoked whenever anybody points out our flaws so that we can become one little bit more pure in our trust, in our obedience, and our worship of Jesus. What about the disciples? The disciples don't understand where fruit comes from. This is a really weird part of the Bible. Have a look with me. Verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus, this is the next day, he's gone to the temple, kicked over all the tables, goes out, has a nap, comes back in the next morning. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. There is so much here. I'm barely going to skim the surface of what's here. Uh, I think this raises a whole bunch of questions for us as Christians, particularly verse 22. That just seems like a blank promise. If you believe something... And you ask for it, God will give it to you. And, and the, only downside, the only thing that would stop that happening is if you didn't have enough faith or you doubted. Um, I don't think that that's exactly what it means. 
But I'm not even going to go there. Michael gave a sermon a couple of weeks back from Matthew 17 with an almost identical saying. Go and listen to that sermon. It was a really good sermon. It's on Spotify. It's on our YouTube channel because he dealt with it in far more depth than I can. He spent a whole sermon unpacking this very idea. Let me just pull out a few things. The key thing, I think, is to see how it fits in the context. Why does Jesus do this right now? Why does Jesus make the promise that he makes right now? Well, it's partly because the fig tree there is a symbol for ancient Israel. Back in the Old Testament, fig trees, you think fig tree, you think ancient Israel. That's one of the connections that happens in the Old Testament. And Jesus has come to ancient Israel, he's come to the capital city, and what's he found? No fruit. Leaves, all the appearance of fruit, no fruit to go with it. No trust in the worship of him. And so, to give a symbol of the judgment ahead, he curses the tree, the tree withers and dies. And the disciples are really surprised by this. Why are they surprised? I think it's because they don't realize only God has the power to give fruit. If I paraphrase verse 21, look with me, verse 21, I'll paraphrase it. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you trust and rely on God to give you spiritual life and fruit, if you genuinely rely on God without doubt, without hedging your bets, then verse 22, God will give you fruit. You will receive what you asked for, spiritual fruit. I think that's what he's saying. I think what they can't see about Jesus is that only he can bring fruit. So all of them, all of us, need to ask God to give us spiritual fruit and to keep giving us spiritual fruit. The danger is they won't rely on God. They won't believe that God can do this. They won't even see that they need to ask God to do this. And so they'll end up judged and withered like the rest of ancient Israel. I think that's what's going on here. But like I said, skimming the surface, go and listen to Michael's sermon. But if I'm right, we need to hear this too. Just like the disciples, we need to ask God to bring fruit in us. I was talking to someone just the other day, uh, and we were both sharing about how when you first become a Christian, it's just super exciting. You're just so aware of God's grace, God's forgiveness to you, how generous God is. Because we were dead, and He made us alive. He gave us spiritual life. But then, after a few years as a Christian, you've made some progress. You know, you've dealt with a few sins. You've got a bit of fruit to show. You're doing better now. And you can start to think that you'd need God less. You don't, of course, we still need God, but I need Him a little bit less. We don't need to rely on Him for spiritual fruit. We're doing okay on our own. Except we're not. We never are. We only ever bear fruit if God brings it in us. And the danger is that we'll stop relying on God. The same danger the disciples had. The danger is that we'll stop relying on God or we won't believe that God can do it and give us fruit and give us victory over a sin, or we won't see that we need to ask God to do this. And Jesus corrects that false view. And then last of all, the last group of people are the kids and the blind and the lame. Ironically, the blind who can see that Jesus is God, the saving King. And so they make the right response. They trust, obey, and worship Jesus. The only people who do make the right response which raises a bit of a confronting question for us. When so many people miss it, how can we expect to see it? How can we do this? 
The crowd missed the Savior King in front of their very eyes because they're looking for the wrong thing. The religious leaders missed the Son of God who is worthy of their worship because they're trying to protect their own power. The disciples missed the source of fruit and their need to rely on Jesus. If they all miss it, how can we be sure that we'll see it? That we'll see who Jesus is and respond in the right way? The answer is, we actually can't. We actually can't do this. We can't see who Jesus is unless Jesus first refines us. By nature, every human is dead in sin. They are dark and blind in our understanding of God. And blind people with dark minds don't see. And even if we could see who Jesus is, we still can't make the right response unless Jesus first refines us so that we can bear that fruit. By nature... Every human doesn't trust or obey or worship God. But praise God, Jesus came to make that change, those very things, to change our nature. And Jesus gives the perfect explanation and illustration of this. A picture of passion fruit vine. This is Jesus' explanation in Jeff's words. A picture of passion fruit vine. How does a vine work? The vine, when it's really healthy, strong, when it's living and alive, it gives life and produces fruit, passion fruit, delicious passion fruit. Life only goes one way, though. The the fruit doesn't give life to the vine. The vine gives life to the fruit. And if you just got a random stick on the ground, you can't really plug that into the vine. Like, it needs to be grafted into the vine. A random stick is not going to produce passion fruits. A random dead stick. That's the illustration Jesus gives. And let me show you it from the Bible. This comes from John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. He prunes and refines it. While every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me... You can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is another reason why I think that's what Jesus is talking about with the fig tree. Ask whatever you want that you bear much fruit in this connection. But see there, there's just so many of the ideas we've looked at today. So many of the ideas are right there. In Jesus, who we were by nature is no longer who we are. How is it that we bear fruit? How can we do this? It's by being in and remaining in the vine, Jesus. Who we were by nature, it's no longer who we are. And this is more than like the reveal moment in Undercover Boss, where the boss is like, ta-da, you're fired. It's more than that moment. Uh, It's more than the moment when you make the illegal turn and the sirens go straight on, because you can see the truth there. I'm sure that on the show, there's plenty of employees who saw the truth of who their boss was and they still didn't change. They still made the wrong response. They saw the truth, but they didn't love the truth. They weren't changed by the truth. But what Jesus does is more like a withered fig tree that bursts into life. It's more like picking up a dead stick, grafting it into the vine to produce an amazing harvest of passion fruit. That's what God does for everyone who trusts in Jesus. 
He makes us able to see who Jesus is so we can respond with trust, obedience, and worship. He brings us into the vine so we can remain in the vine. Now, let me finish. What does this mean for you if you're a Christian? What some of those mean? Just pull all this together. For those of us who are Christians, I think this means we need to keep repenting. We need to keep turning back to God, turning back to trust, obey, and worship Jesus, our God, God the saving King. We need to keep asking God to refine us and bring fruit, especially to refine our understanding of Jesus so we more fully trust and obey and worship Him. So we're not like the crowd who just keep reshaping Jesus to suit them. So we're not like the religious leaders who say all the right things but have hearts that are far from Him. So we're not like the disciples who are surprised that we need to keep trusting God to bear fruit. We're going to be like the kids, like the blind, like the lame, who trust Jesus and stay in the vine. And what does this mean for you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring these things? Well, who is Jesus to you? The crowd is like, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole crowd was stirred and asked, who is this? That's the question you've got to answer. And as you're deciding if you're going to trust, obey, and worship Jesus, let me ask you, is it the real Jesus that you're weighing up? Because it would be tragic to reject a Jesus who is just a figment of our imaginations. A Jesus as we want Jesus to be, with no resemblance of the Jesus of history and what Jesus actually said about himself. If you reject Jesus, at least make sure it's the real Jesus that you're rejecting. But an even greater tragedy would be to reject Jesus, to reject the remarkable Jesus, the Jesus who comes to fix not our felt needs, but a devastating problem we didn't even know we had, who comes to rebuke hypocritical, self-righteous religion because he hates it even more than you do, who comes to bring living fruit out of dead souls. A far better response than rejecting him, though, The only right response, the only response he deserves is to trust him and obey him and worship him. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing and do exactly that. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you so much for your forgiveness of us. Thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us who you are so that we can respond in the right way. We pray that we would, for those of us who are Christians, please keep refining us. Help us to keep understanding who Jesus is so we can respond in the right way and trust him and obey him and worship him. And for those of us who aren't Christians who are exploring all of this, please help us to see the truth. Please help us not to shape you as we want you to be. Help us to see the truth of who Jesus is and how good he is so we can make the right response too. Amen.